Well, we are continuing in our series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, a couple weeks ago, before all the snow happened, um, we had just finished 1 Corinthians 1, um, around verses, I think, if I'm recalling right, 9 through 17. And uh, this week, we're going to be in verses 18 through 31, <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at this uh, message I've titled, The Wisdom of God. The Wisdom of God. It's a, a pretty simple title. I think you'll get why we're looking at that as we go through the text uh, as a topic and or title because it's just straightforward there. Um, last time we met, one of the things that I uh, shared is this focus on the idea that the church at Corinth was struggling because there, there was this um, elevation of one teacher or leader in the church over another, and that it was causing conflicts within the church. This week, one of the things that we're going to look at is a little bit deeper meaning behind or that lay behind that conflict and why they may have been elevating one another uh, or, or speakers or teachers over another one. Um, and that basically comes down to this idea that they thought they thought that there were one of those teachers possessed greater wisdom. And so Paul takes this idea of great what really godly wisdom consists of and he expands on this so let me read this statement here's the bottom line of paul's instructions the wisdom of god which is found in the message of the cross of christ is superior to any human wisdom and ought to be that on which followers of jesus carefully cling i'm going to repeat that okay because i think it's important for us to catch that and especially, I think, coming on a, a day where we've had the opportunity to look at, uh, like, the testimony of Nick and Helen in baptism, they're pointing not to just the baptismal waters, but what? The cross of Christ, where the atonement work, or the atoning work of Christ has made this propitiation for their sins. Don't worry about those words. We're going to look at those things later, okay? So, so hang on with me. But let me repeat this statement. The bottom line of Paul's instructions are the, this. The wisdom of God which is found in the message of the cross of Christ, is superior to any human wisdom and ought to be that on which the followers of Jesus closely cling or tightly cling to. And that may seem like, oh, yeah, Matt, that's, that's like just so simple, so basic. Well, maybe so, but the truth is, I think not only did the church at Corinth struggle with that, but I think today we really struggle with that too. Because I think a lot of times we think, especially in the digital age, we have so much easy access and fast access to so much information. We can look back at history and things that, that were not modern but pre-modern, and we think we know so much more. And we may have knowledge of things, but the, the truth is, knowledge of things doesn't necessarily bring us wisdom. And if we don't cling tightly to the cross of Christ in that message, all of our wisdom is actually earthly wisdom, and it's for naught. And that's ultimately what Paul's getting at. So let's look at the text. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 through 31, and I'm going to try to unpack this pretty quickly this morning. It says in the text, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Let me, let me pause and editorialize real quickly. 
Do you hear in those rhetorical questions how Paul is basically uh, undermining or, or dismissing or addressing those Greek uh, perspectives there? Who is wise in this age? There's no one. We can look at all these aspects of Greek life, but there's nothing about those that really bring us wisdom. That's, that's part of what he is trying to dispel about that the church had elevated in a wrong way. Okay, so let's pick back up at verse 21. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believed. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So let me begin. Um, let's look back. Danny, could you do me a favor? Just turn this down just a smidge. Is there a ring to you guys? Some of you, yes, okay. So it's not in my imagination. It's not the cold that I've been fighting and just ringing in my head because it's empty. Okay, good. Nobody, no, y'all, are y'all awake? Okay, let's go back to verse, uh, verse 18. Um, what we see here in the text begins with, this, uh, Paul begins with this first clear idea. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So, so as I was studying this, I, my first thought was, what does he mean by the word of the cross? Because I'm like, is there something implied more than just the straight meaning of that? And, and I would actually just confess this to you. As I'm trying to like unpack and maybe be creative, all my study said, nope, it's just a simple idea. What the word of the cross really is, is just us preaching or teaching or telling about Jesus. If we look at chapter 2, verse 14, real quickly, um, it says this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. All that Paul is getting at is that, that what we are talking about here in the word of the cross is that which the natural man is in conflict with. And, and I think this is part of what's beautiful about preaching this message on a day when we got to do a baptism because we remember back, and I hope you each remember back, the days that you were lost when you didn't confess or hadn't known Christ and had not confessed him as Lord. You remember the natural man of you about who you were was sinful. You didn't like the things of God. You, you didn't want to pursue those things. There was a resistance within each of us towards the things of Christ. And so what we need to hear is the hope of the gospel that is simply 
preaching and teaching that Christ has come to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might have life. It's a simple, simple message. But the world, because of who we are in our flesh, because of sin, we reject that. We resist it. And it leaves us in a state of what Paul calls as folly or foolishness. We've all been there. There's millions of people across the globe. Many of us have friends that are in that state where the things of God look as like foolishness to them. We need to remember that we were once in that state, and we need to bear with kindness and grace and mercy a relationship with them so that they can be introduced to Christ through the testimony that we live out so that they might experience the transforming power of the cross. It's a simple message, but it's a very, very practical message. So why do they struggle with this? Well, I mentioned it. It's because they can, uh, this thing is, the, the cross is considered as foolishness. What's really interesting to me, and I, I hope you are picking this up from maybe, I, I hope what I model in a right way in, in my study of the word, is I try to note all these places in the, the New Testament where Paul quotes something in the Old Testament. And here's one of those places. It's really interesting to me right here in verse 19. So he's talking about how the cross is foolish, foolishness or folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes back and he says, for it is written. Well, where is this written? We need to go back and understand why Paul uses this statement. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 29. So if you have a a ribbon in your Bible or something you can throw in to 1 Corinthians, do that because we'll be back there if you struggle a little bit with Bible drill kind of stuff. But we're going to look at Isaiah 29 for just a moment. Now, he's specifically quoting um, out of verse uh, 13 and 14 here. But I want us to go back after we read this context, and we're going to look at a little bit of the whole context of Isaiah 29. So let's read Isaiah 29, 13, and 14. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of this discerning men shall be hidden. So here's what he's saying. These people were living in a religious paradigm that actually had nothing to do with their hearts. Now let me show you how I know that more specifically. Let's go back to 29 verse uh, 1. He says, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their, their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will camp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. What, wow, what a judgment that God like, uh, uh, clarifies right there that he's going to bring forth upon Ariel. Now, now, if you have to like look back at this, I want to un- help you understand this. The idea of Ariel is really, really interesting because it's, it, it kind of does a twofold meaning, if you will. The first is obviously it's about the city. There's an actual city named Ariel. Now, what's interesting, though, is the word itself means, and I want to make sure I get this right, 
The word itself means alter heart. So, so I want you to imagine what's happening, what the Lord's uh, defining about the, the people and the city of Ariel is that they were coming to the altar in worship, but what is the accusation against them? All of that worship was just ritual. It was just empty religiosity. So now let's go back and read verse 13 again. He says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. You you hear the contrast that the, the Lord is drawing. These people are serving the Lord. They're, they're doing all these things in, in uh, ritualistic worship to Him, but where are their hearts really? They're distant. Their hearts are not invested. Their hearts are not involved. What does that sound like today? That can sound like a lot of modern Christianity, can't it? Where, where you look and people will say, oh, especially in the South and Southeast, right? Here we are in the buckle, Bible buckle belt um, of Nashville, it's, it's easy. You, you can pull people, oh, yeah, I grew up a Christian. I know all these things. They can check box after box after box. But when you begin to press in about their hearts being devoted to the Lord, what does it really look like? Truthfully, I would say most people can be really distant from the Lord. But there's a religiosity about them or about us as a community and a culture. And we need to take that to heart ourselves because we need to strip through those things because these people live as if the cross is actually foolishness to them because they're not rightly depending upon Christ for their salvation and for it, or in, in a genuine walk with Him. So when we think about this, what, what is happening is the Lord is wanting to show Himself sovereign. He wants to strip away all of these things that men raise up to say, I'm wise, I'm discerning. He wants to reestablish his wisdom, his sovereignty, his power, so that their religiosity is also stripped away, and they can only do what? They can only depend upon him. Look back at uh, verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with the people. This, there's hope. He says, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. I'm going to strip that away. And the discernment of this discerning men or their discerning men shall be hidden. I'm going to take all those things and I'm going to put them together in such a way that those men cannot depend on anyone but me. And so, so remember, the entire context of Isaiah is what? About the coming Messiah, the, the promise of the, the one to be born of the virgin who will be the suffering servant to come as we see in Isaiah 53. So all of these things are centered around this idea that the Lord has to strip us of our self-dependency. So, here's, here's one of the, the things. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians now. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, I was, I actually, yeah, let's, let me look at this. For, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now, if you remember some of the early context of our uh, thoughts about the church at Corinth, it was composed mostly or comprised mostly of uh, Gentiles. But there were also a small remnant of Jews that were part of the diaspora that were there in the church. And so I think that's partially why Paul appeals to the the, uh, Old Testament scriptures to bring in this message. And he has them explain that the Jews would have had to have 
unpack that a little bit, and they would have been confronted about these things. And so he's saying, look, for both of you, Jews seek these things, the, the signs, and the Greeks seek what? Wisdom. He's saying, I'm stripping all of that away from you. Because the tendency is, by all standards of human wisdom, the cross negates that. And, and I want you to hang on that thought for just a moment. The cross negates all attempts of human wisdom to accomplish salvation and righteousness on our own. See, that's what every one of us wrestles with, isn't it? In our prideful independence, we want to strive after the things of God apart from Jesus. We don't want to depend upon His work of grace. We want to see how we can do certain things in our life to be righteous before Him without depending upon His work. Paul strips all of that away. He says the cross, the cross alone is the path to righteousness. The cross alone is the way of wisdom. If we depend upon anything else, we are foolish and our folly will bring us to an end. So he says further, he says in verse 22, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So I, I was thinking about this and um, I was looking, at, and, and as you know, I'm, I, I say this probably every time, I look to Spurgeon frequently because I'm studying him, doing work, a lot of work in his, uh, on his thoughts right now for my dissertation. And so I was like, oh, oh, I think sometimes he just captures great ideas and communicates them really well. And so I looked at his uh, message and part of this passage, and I thought, this is just tremendous. So I want to give you three things that he summarizes. I think these help us. Um, he draws some conclusions about what it means to preach Jesus or to preach the cross, and I think these are really helpful and essential for us. So the first thing that he says is we must preach Jesus as very God of very God. That's going back to that Nicene Creed. Where we, and what he means by that is if we don't preach Jesus as fully divine, then we err in our focus and teaching on Jesus. And, and folks, that may sound so like basic for us and foundational for us because we've been looking at those concepts for several months now and emphasizing those things over really a course of uh, much more than a year. Th those have threaded through the divinity of Christ. But to most people... The divinity of Christ is not really maximized. It's, it's massaged into things in some ways, and it's actually compromised in our world. And in what I would say or what most people would consider as evangelical churches that are strong, it's not emphasized well enough. And if we don't focus in carefully on who Christ is, everything that we will be about will end up being far off trajectory. It's that, that idea we can begin close, but if we take a little bit of a, a trajectory away, by the end, it's diverted quite a ways. And we cannot err on the divinity of Christ. He is very God, a very God. If you want more reading on that, see me afterwards. i got about 40 books I can recommend. Okay, Some of them will be short, I promise. If you want more like academic stuff, I'll point you in that direction too. Um, the second point that Spurgeon makes, and I think this is just as important, he says we are also to preach Jesus incarnate, that Jesus came in the flesh. And we've spent time, again, 
throughout November and December looking at those very topics and how they related as we did our study on the Trinity and then the incarnation of Christ as we leaned into Christmas. If we don't get that aspect right, we will also err. And there's, there's a lot of theories. I know it may sound strange to some of your ears, but there are theories out there that Christ has been, like he was born um, a man, and then the, the divinity, uh, the divine nature uh, was adopted by him. All sorts of crazy things. And if we're not careful, we can fall into some of those traps because truthfully, churches are not careful in teaching these things. And we need to be people of the word so that we identify well how Christ is taught in the scripture because we need to preach the power of the cross. And we need to also recognize this. Because it is folly to the world, the world will lean into wrong perspectives. And they will compromise quickly on these things because they don't like it. Because it is foolish to them and it confronts them on their need for Christ. The third thing that uh, Spurgeon preaches or said in his sermon, I love this one um, as well. He says, we are to emphasize the offices of Christ. What are the offices of Christ? There's three of them. Can anybody? I know y'all know. Somebody in here knows. Say it, say it again, Kevin. Priest, prophet, king, or prophet, priest, king. You know, it's not a magical order or anything or a biblical order. Um, but those three offices are the offices of Christ. Now, what do those offices mean? I love how he breaks this down. And he's gonna, I'm going to read a quote, and I want to qualify this as I read it. Because he's going to say something here kind of if we miss this. So it's a negative first that he's couching to kind of arrest our attention so that we understand the importance of these offices of Christ. Here's what Spurgeon said. The Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's positive. But he says this. A priest unordained, a prophet unsent of God, a king without divine authority would have been only a mockery. But our great high priest has div- was divinely anointed. Our peerless prophet was sent of God, and our king is king of kings and lord of lords, rightly ruling as the eternal son of the eternal father. I I love that quote because I think he contrasts, if we had not had Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king, if he was not ordained and not filled those roles rightly, we would not have a ministry to us that was successful. We needed Jesus to be the perfect priest, prophet, and king. Now here's what those offices do for us. As a priest, think about the Old Testament priest or any kind of priest for that matter. It could be even an ungodly priest. What they're trying to do is they're trying to what? Offer some kind of sacrifice that means a, uh, uh, that offers a means of mediation for those that they're sacrificing for. Now, in the sense of a godly priest, what are they trying to do? They're trying to atone for the sins of the people, especially when you go back to the Old Testament. That was a specifically the role of the priest. He would Uh, take the offering, and he would lay his hands upon it. There would be a scapegoat that would take the sins away, and there would be another sacrifice that would pay the penalty for the sins. That had to be repeated on an ongoing basis because as animals, their life was not equal to the life that we have because we're created in the image of God. So we needed Christ, the perfect priest, to what? Do the atoning work. What does that make? To mean to make intercession and to pay the penalty for our sins. He's also the perfect prophet whose words are divine. When we come to the words of Jesus, they can be trusted. Danny was asking me today, um, I'm really excited, by the way, there's like five or six of you guys um, that, are, that have 
last week started at the Harvest School of Ministry. Um, Kevin, you and Chase, uh, Danny, you and Julie, Shay, Auditing, um, who else? Um, Tony. So there's seven. Uh, no, I, I, I didn't count, raise my thumb. That's why I need more fingers and toes. What is that, six of y'all? Is that right? Okay. I, I, I paid y'all all. You didn't tell them that, right? Um, no, but, but t- Danny, as a result of that, part of the first uh, part of the uh, systematic theology typically focuses on how the word is authority, how we can trust that. So Danny was talking to me this morning about what the canon of Scripture is. So cool, cool stuff. Well, how do we know part of Danny's response to me as I was quizzing him about what the canon is? We know the canon of Scripture. That's that measuring rod that tells us these are the standards that are met. Partially all of Scripture is canonized because of how Jesus refers to the authority of Scripture. So how he's pointed to Genesis all through the book, uh, or what we would call the the, um, Pentateuch, the prophets, the the, uh, poetic or wisdom books. He's looked at all of those things in Scripture and identified those things. So when we think about the words of Christ, certainly they're not the Old Testament words in that sense, like what we would say are the red letters in the New Testament. But Christ has said, I'm elevating those as truth. And so we trust his authority in that to, to say that these are trustworthy things. So that's why we say the canon of scriptures, all these things can be trusted because Christ himself trusted them and relied upon them. You say, how did Christ rely upon them? Well, quickly, when he was tempted, he went back and quoted the Old Testament to uphold his strength in the midst of the temptation. So all of those things are qualified by Christ. So we can what? As him being our great high priest and what? Prophet. We can trust his words and his teaching. In the third office, he's the king. I, I love this, and this is where uh, with Helen and Nick, and I think what we're trying to really emphasize is we've changed how we're kind of doing our baptisms with testimonies now. One of the things that we're really trying to bring up in that testimony time is the point of surrender of life. Because if we thought about a king, the king does what? He requires his servants, his, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Subjects, thank you, Tony. His subjects to what? Submit and surrender to Him because He is their sovereign Lord. How much more is Jesus the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, the perfect King who we are to surrender to? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he, de- he demands and is honored by our undivided obedience and allegiance to Him. So, so you see what Paul is getting at is it's not about the wisdom and the discernment of men. It's about us submitting rightly to the power and the authority of the cross and its message. So let's turn over to Romans 3. Um, because I want to cover one thing really quickly in light of all this. Because when we think about the power of the cross, I think this is essential. And I'm going to finish up here in about five minutes, so hang on. So Romans 3, verses 21, we're going to read through 30 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the law, remember, that's the Old Testament uh, instructions that would have told us how we are sinful, that we cannot uphold those things, and Christ has come in to fulfill the law so that we, through his sacrifice, could have a means of atonement. We're going to look at that a little bit more. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
There, uh, and what does he mean by there is no distinction? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's addressing both Jews and Greeks. Same thing as he's doing in 1 Corinthians. It's neither Jews or Greeks that are set apart. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is the only means of redemption? It's through Christ. It's because of the cross of Christ that, and, and our response to his work in faith that we find righteousness. It's not our own doing. Let's keep going. He says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now let me pause here. I get accused of this too frequently, if, in my opinion, that I use big words. I'm, I wish there were some folks here that write down my big words and they, they have a running list of those things. I'd pick on them. Propitiation, I said it earlier. Atonement, I said it earlier. Yes, they're big words. But what kind of words are they? They're biblical words, right? And so even if they're big words and we may not be familiar with them, what do we need to do? We need to familiarize ourselves with them, right? We, we need to understand their meaning. So if you ever write in your Bible, this is a time to do that, okay? I write in my Bible. It's not sacrilege. It's just paper, okay? It's, 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 not, it's not the original manuscripts, we don't have those. Don't worry about writing your Bible. It's a good, good habit. So if you write in your Bible, write this beside this verse because it will help you remember what propitiation deals with. Propitia propitiation has to do with Christ diverting the wrath of God from us. He's appeasing or satisfying God's wrath. That's what it means. So when he shed his blood for sinful man, he satisfied God's wrath, and God does not have to look at us any longer as children of wrath. When we, by faith, accept Christ as our Savior. I, I use this crude illustration. It's a great one for kids. Maybe not so much anymore. Um, I, I don't know because I don't buy cereal boxes anymore. But y'all remember the days when you bought cereal boxes, and they had the messy kind of map on the back, and you dig through the, like, I, did y'all do this? You pour out the whole bowl, uh, like whole box in a big bowl, and you'd get out the decoder glasses or the toy, and you'd pour it back in so your mom wouldn't know, and then you'd eat the cereal. Okay, I'm, I, I see some heads. Okay, I wasn't the only one guilty. So, but here's the idea. So apart from those red decoder glasses, what's the back of the box look like? It's a big old mess, right? And so here's its crude illustration, but I think it's helpful. When we think about God looking at us, the mess of sin, the back of the cereal box, until he sees us through the blood of Christ, all he sees is objects of wrath. But Christ, through his blood, has satisfied the Father's wrath. And he's paid the penalty for our sins. And now when Christ looks at us, he sees us as right, righteous, whole, holy, sanctified is what we've looked at. In, in the sense of perpetually sanctified, complete, because there's a sense that we are done even though we're still in process. There's going to be a day that we are glorified. Isn't that a great thing? If you are in Christ, you will have a glorified spirit, soul, and body. Amazing. All why? Because Christ has atoned for our sins, and he satisfied the wrath of the Father and made a way for us. What a great, perfect, holy, high priest, prophet, and king. Why would we not want to surrender to this perfect Savior and, and find him as Lord and Master.
So, let me finish back to 1 Corinthians. I'm not going to read the rest of Romans 3. You can go back and read. Well, let me actually, let me do that. Verse 26, because it goes, it goes so well. He says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is, how are we justified? Jesus is the justifier when we have faith. You get that? It's such a great truth. Verse 28, uh, or verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? See, it goes back to what Paul's talking about in Corinthians right here. There ought not be any boasting. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. Boasting is excluded by faith. Because what is our faith in? Our faith is not a, a power of our own. Our faith is satisfied because it rests upon the object of our faith, who is what? Who is who? Christ. Who is the one who satisfied our needs because he endured our penalty and paid the atonement and propitiated the wrath of God by what he did on the cross. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. See, when we respond by grace through faith, the law is satisfied because it points to our inability to work to be our own means of redemption, and we're trusting in Christ. That's how the law is satisfied, because we trust in Christ. Let's go back now to 1 Corinthians 1. Finish this. Verses 26 through 31. So, so Paul says all of these things about what is our boasting to be in. How are we to rely upon Christ and, and that to, to set aside any differences amongst us? And he says this, lastly, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly, worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's dispelling all the things that had elevate, led the church to elevate these other people or to elevate uh, Greek uh, rhetoric and all those principles that they were doing. It's like none of that stuff matters. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Do you hear what we, who we are in Christ? Go back to, for that just for a moment. Wisdom. If you want wisdom in this world, if you want discernment in this world, where does it begin? It begins by you relinquishing your prideful independence and sin and saying, I need Christ. I need Christ. And when you relinquish and surrender to Him, then through that work, you become what? Righteous. In Christ. You become sanctified. What? In Christ. And He is our redemption. He takes us who were sinful and separated from God, and He brings us back into right fellowship. That's where wisdom begins. It's godly wisdom, all founded upon what? The cross of Christ. The cross of Christ and Christ alone. And he says in verse 31, So that it is written, Let the one boast who boasts what? Boast in the Lord. Folks, I, I mentioned this earlier. We live in a day and age where 
people have various opinions about Christianity. And, and I'm going to make a pretty bold comment here. If people in the world are embracing Christianity and it's easy for them to do so, that Christianity has probably lost its teeth in the cross of Christ. And we need to be careful to recognize that I, I want us to, to see the influence of Christ in our nation. But folks, we are way past being a Christian nation. We are post-Christian nation. And I don't expect a president or any government official to, to stand on a platform and elevate Christ. And if we think that that's going to be accomplished for them, it's probably a watered-down version of Christianity. The power of the cross comes through where primarily? I'm going to say it in two ways. First and foremost, the church, and the church is comprised of Christian families. Those two entities are ordained by God. No other entity is. Not even parachurch stuff. So you think about a pregnancy center or some, some other kind of great ministry, like uh, I think ministry to the homeless, that do those things under the name of Christ. That's all well and good, but they cannot stand in the place of the church and the family that walks with the Lord. We need to be a church that elevates Christ, and we need to be comprised of families that elevate the cross of Christ. Because when we will do that, the gospel will have teeth and traction, and we will see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If we wait for anyone else to do it, it will fail. And if we see it happening, we need to be like, have our antennae up and go, that, that's probably not a healthy version of Christianity. Because... The cross of Christ is what? Foolishness to the world and to natural man. That's what the Word says, not that. I think I, that's why I can say it boldly, though, with confidence, and say, if we see that, we need to be warned. And we need to, to be careful not to fall into the trap of following those ways of the world. We ought to be set apart. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, especially in this day and age. Because there's more and more acceptance of a variety of, of worldviews and ideas. But constantly and consistently, Christianity is the one that is pushed back on or rejected. That's okay. Be ready for that. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you possess, the cross of Christ. If you, if you like hear this message and go, man, that's, that's pretty good stuff. Go back and read through, again, really well, 1 Corinthians 1. These passages in verses 18 through 31. And learn how to cling tightly to the power of the cross of Christ. Because that, that alone is what transforms us. So I would ask you this question. Just a simple question this morning. How are you responding to the wisdom of the cross of Christ? How is godly wisdom being imparted or cl like cling tightly to in your life? Are you pursuing the cross of Christ and who you are in Christ? Or are you like dabbling with things of the world and saying, I can find hope here and, here and there. And while I'm still kind of like clinging to Christ a bit, if you're dabbling, those things will distract you and your natural man, the flesh, the old flesh, you'll war with the things of, of, that Christ is really trying to do within you and you will flounder. Cling, cling tightly to the cross of Christ. Let that be our greatest wisdom and discernment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for such a great morning of worship, of testimony of your faithfulness and work in lives. Lord, for the, the hope 
that we have in Christ. Lord, if ever there's a, a message that I, I would hope that we just really cling tightly to, it's this, that we look to the cross and we cling tightly to it so that Christ in His wisdom empowers us for every obstacle, decision, matter that we face so that you, our high priest, our prophet, our king of kings and lord of lords, are honored well with our lives. Lord, as we stand together and sing a reprise of this message, or this, the worship today, may it reflect both our hearts in gratitude and worship to you, and also the message that we've heard today from the scripture. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.